said, why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of now. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week as we take on the Advent season, as we enter into this glorious time in the church's calendar, preparing, making straight the path, and longing for the day when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would humble himself, would condescend himself, coming down from heaven and taking on human flesh to be, among, to be amongst us, to reconcile us back to God. What a powerful time of the year that we get to now celebrate. And I hope that you're as excited about it as I am. And, you know, what I really like about this season and the church's tradition is to really look back in typology and salvation history and ponder upon all of those prophecies that were foretold in the people of God in the Old Testament, where the people of God longed for and looked forward to that day, the coming of the Messiah. And today we're going to look at one of the first ones. They are found in, in Genesis chapter 3, the, the proto-evangelium, or the first good news, the first gospel. All that coming up on today's Behold the Man. That intro song is The King, He Comes by Ike Naldo. Or Ike Naldo. I think I mispronounced his name on the last show that I played one of his songs. So sorry about that, Ike. I meant no offense. I hope you can forgive me. 
You can find a link to Ike's website on my website at www.catholichack.com. Can you tell I've got a lot of cobwebs in there? It's been a few weeks since I've produced the last Behold the Man show. I've been busy last weekend with the Fullness of Truth Catholic Family Conference in Houston, Texas. It was called Winning the Culture War, and you can actually... uh, by the talks from that conference on the website at fullnessoftruth.org. Well, let's begin as we always do with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For thou hast no delight in sacrifice, were I to give a burnt offering. Thou wouldst not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God our Father, you love the world so much, you gave your only Son to free us from the ancient power of sin and death. Help us who wait for his coming, and lead us to true liberty. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I said, the season of Advent is upon us. And it's time now that we prepare the way of the Lord. How do you celebrate Advent? How do you prepare yourself for the Advent, the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you encountered people in your life, in your work, your family, maybe neighbors, who don't celebrate Christmas at all? I mean, there are, there are several groups that I can think of off the top of my head. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for one. Messianic uh, believers are another who, who absolutely say that to celebrate Christmas is a pagan ritual. Is that true? Is, is it true that the Christians somehow hijacked a pagan holiday and, and dubbed it Christmas? And, oh, it was never celebrated before, before, the, before Constantine took possession of the church? Well, that's not true. <laughs> Actually, that's not true at all. There are very ancient traditions within the church, different communities within the church in Alexandria, Egypt, in Jerusalem, and elsewhere in Greece, who celebrated the Advent or Nativity at different times. It sort of fluctuated between dates in November all the way to dates in January. But the tradition of of the Nativity goes way back within the church. So that season of Advent, the preparation for the coming of our Lord, the, the celebration for the Nativity, the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, also goes way back and itself has some varying traditions between communities. But what I love is, as it began to develop and, and sort of come together, and the church started to form its liturgical practice with this season of Advent, it sort of saw this as a many Lent, an opportunity to fast, to pray, to give alms, to do good works in preparation to prepare our hearts, to, to put within our heart this sense of penance, the sense of reconciliation necessary to make way, to make uh, straight the path, to make way and room for our Lord and His coming, His Advent. And so I think it's a very beautiful opportunity for us to to seize hold of this spirit of, of penance, of fasting, of reconciliation, to create within us a clean heart, O Lord. 
you know? And that's what David is crying out in Psalm 51, which we quoted in the opening prayer there. That was him, you know, sort of lamenting his own sin when he took for himself Bathsheba and he he laid with her in an adulterous relationship and then he murdered her husband so that he could have her all to himself and hide his sin because she was pregnant and bearing his child and he didn't want anybody to know but God knew and in 2 Samuel chapter 12 God sent the prophet Nathanael to hear the confession of this king to dole out the penance and then to reconcile David back to him as being the only man who is ever said to in sacred scripture to be a man after God's own heart. Let me tell you something. If that is a man after God's own heart, there is hope for each and every one of us. Because aren't we no better or no greater than David? Our sins equally offensive to God our Father in heaven. And yet, if we could only repent like David, we too can enjoy that unique relationship, that close personal relationship with our Lord as he comes and gives himself to us, reconciling us, us man, to God. The season of Advent. You know, I especially, like I said, love how this season is filled with typology. There's an article on uh, newadvent.com on on the season of Advent, which I'll link to at catholichack.com. Just look for the show notes on Behold the Man Christmas Lent, and you will find the link there. And I'm going to read you part of this, this, this article, which is pretty phenomenal, actually. It's very beautiful. It says, quote, In the Masses, the intention of the Church is shown in the choice of the epistles and gospels. In the epistles, she exhorts the faithful that, since the Redeemer is nearer, they should cast aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, should walk honestly as in the day, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. She shows that the nations are called to praise the name of the Lord. She asks them to rejoice in the nearness of the Lord, so that the price of God, which surpasses all understanding, may keep their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. She admonishes them not to pass judgment, for the Lord, when he comes, will manifest the secrets hidden in the hearts. In the Gospels, the Church speaks of the Lord coming in glory, of Him in and through whom the prophecies are being fulfilled, of the eternal walking in the midst of the Jews, of the voice in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The Church in her liturgy takes us in spirit back to the time before the incarnation of the Son of God as though it were really yet to take place. Cardinal Wiseman says, We are not dryly exhorted to profit by the blessed event, but we are daily made to sigh with the fathers of old. Send down the dew, ye heavens from above, and let the clouds rain the just one. Let the earth be opened and bud forth the Redeemer. The collects on the three of the four Sundays of that season begin with the words, Lord, raise up thy power and come, as though we feared our iniquities would prevent us, or prevent him, rather, from being born 
unquote. So it's that, it's that looking back, it's that becoming truly and really present in history. Because to God, all moments of time are present to him simultaneously in the perpetual now. He is always here and now, always present. And so we sort of enter mystically into this opportunity to go back in time and to really experience what it would have been like to have been Our Lady or to be St. Joseph, who in that time, in that particular period of time, there was this extra fervent longing, this extra fervent desire and expectation for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, partly because of the prophecy found in the book of Daniel, where we were told that in a certain age of time, the Redeemer would come, the Messiah would come, this pebble which would become a mountain, okay, which who would ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father and come in judgment upon all. That prophecy was becoming truly present in the lives of Our Lady and St. Joseph in that period of time, because that was the period of time where they were looking for the Messiah, according to that prophecy. So prophecy had a very interesting place in the, 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 the story of salvation history. All of these prophecies come to their perfect fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can look at many, but today I want to look back at Genesis chapter 3, that first that first good news, the foretelling of the Redeemer to make right what had been set wrong. But have you ever thought and stopped and pondered, oh, what it would have been like for Our Lady to know that within her womb grows the child Redeemer, grows the Messiah, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, Oh, you might argue with me. Oh, she didn't know that. I mean, have you not heard the song, Mary, Did You Know? I mean, poor Mary. She just didn't know any better. She's just a young little girl, and she's just, just so innocent. And she just doesn't know anything. <laughs> Don't believe that for an instant. That is not accurate at all. Our Lady would have known the prophecies, memorized them, would have known them like the back of her hand. Tradition tells us that she grew up in the temple that she soaked up the prophecies and the word of God. She would have known it, breathed it, lived it more so than you and I could ever imagine. We could read scripture every single day and it would not be the same for us as it was for her and for St. Joseph for that matter. Because of their time and place in history, because of their people and the way they communicated the faith, it would have been passed down so intimately, so precisely, from one generation to the next, it would have been the duty of the father of the home to see to it that his children would pass on the faith of the people on to the next generation. They would have known it, and they wouldn't have read a word. Our Lady would have never read from a scroll, and yet she would have known that far better, more accurately than you and I could ever have known it. So what did Our Lady know? Did she know that one day this child would walk on water? Well, I submit to you that she knew that that child, who the angel himself proclaimed him to be the Messiah, the son of the living God, the true son of David, who inherit the throne, who, unlike Solomon, would be wiser than all and grander than all and would truly bring about the kingdom of heaven. This one was the prophet that Moses himself spoke of, that one like him would come, only he would be greater. 
And Mary knew that Moses walked through water, so the one greater could definitely walk on water. And Moses, who led the people into the wilderness and called down bread from heaven to feed the people in the wilderness, this child would bring about a new heavenly bread, a new exodus, only it would be his body and his blood that would bring about life, food that we would consume. Our Lady knew all the prophecies. She knew of the prophecy of the one, the suffering servant in Isaiah, who would come and who would die for his people. She knew that by his stripes, we, she, would be healed. She knew that this child had a future. Only that future meant suffering and death. Because as St. Paul makes clear to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, that we unite our suffering to Christ on the cross, and suffering now has value and purpose. And so in preparing the way for the Lord to come in his nativity, we can now embrace suffering and give it a glorious highlight, a joy that, that this world could never begin to understand. It sees suffering as completely negative. We as Christians as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, must see suffering as he saw it from the cross, as salvific, as redeeming, as beauty. Because as he says in the upper room, you can do no greater thing than to lay down your life for a friend, right? So I'm getting way off track here, but I just love this idea of meditating upon what our Lord, uh, what our Lady uh, Mary and uh, St. Joseph, our protector and guardian of families in the church, what they would have meditated on as this child grew within the womb of Mary. And I truly believe that, as tradition tells us, that they would have meditated upon all of these prophecies, that they would have kept it in their heart and pondered on, on it, as even St. Luke's Gospel makes clear that Our Lady, in fact, did. But we know, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, that we see there the fall of mankind, we see how death enters into the existence of man. But we also see how death is now required in order for mankind to be reconciled back to God. You see, before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed personal communion with God himself. For the Lord walked in the garden with mankind. Right? And after that, man was exiled out of the garden, for he was in his sins, and he could not eat of the tree of life, lest he live in his sins forever. And so now to be reconciled, to enter once again into that presence with God, death must occur, the death of an animal, a sacrifice, for blood must be spilt. And so we see there in Genesis chapter 3, actually, the very first confession being made. We see the very first good news being proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first good news, that between the woman and the serpent, there will be enmity. The woman can have nothing to do with the serpent, nothing in kind, nothing in common, nothing to do with it whatsoever. For God has placed enmity between the woman, her seed, and the serpent. 
and his seed. We see this come to fulfillment perfectly, especially in the book of Revelation chapter 12, where that woman is seen there, crowned with 12 stars on her head. That woman bears a child, and that dragon, the ancient serpent, chases her down, only he can never capture her. He can't have her son, and he can't have her, for there is enmity between the two. That woman is Our Lady, Mary, the Blessed Virgin, who is now Queen of Heaven and Earth, who is now lives with God for eternity, body, soul, up there in Heaven, united. She is now in heaven, protected from the serpent who chases her down. And because the serpent couldn't get her, he now comes after us. And so look out, because, you know, the only way for us to have enmity between us and and the serpent is to live in grace. And that, for that, we need the sacraments. But this story of the fall of mankind brings about the sacrament of confession, along with all the other sacraments that our Lord you know, brought about in the foundation of his church. This is the medicine for the soul, that we might live in a state of grace, die a good death, and be united to God the Father through the purifying fires of purgatory. I love how the Catechism of the Catholic Church talks of the sacrament of confession. In paragraph 1422, it says, quote, Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offense committed against him and are at the same time reconciled with the church which they have wounded by their sins and which by charity, by example, and by prayer labors for their conversion. Speaking of their conversion, in paragraph 1431, just a a few paragraphs later, it says, Interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an end of sin, a turning away from evil with repugnance toward the evil actions we have committed. At the same time, It entails the desire and resolution to change one's life with hope in God's mercy and trust in the help of His grace. This conversion of heart is accompanied by a salutary pain and sadness, which the fathers called affliction of spirit and repentance of heart. So we see here in the garden the fall of man, the model for the first conversion, the first confession which we now enjoy in the very sacrament our Lord brought about. We see the pattern actually starting to emerge from Scripture. Grace. Adam and Eve lived in a state of grace with God before the fall. Then they were tested, because if we are not tested, we cannot know that we are true to ourselves and to God. That test came in the form of the serpent, a creature lesser than mankind, being allowed to come in between man and his wife at that most vulnerable moment when they were both naked and not ashamed, Genesis 2.25. They they were tested and they failed that test, for Adam's cowardice allowed his wife to be confronted, not protected by the man, but instead confronted by this beast, this creature, this venomous serpent who would threaten and bully. Only she was beguiled and she ate. 
And the coward Adam ate as well, and they fell from grace, for their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked and ashamed, and they hid themselves. We see the effects of the fall in their shame. It's just like the effects of committing sin today. If I drink too much, I become an alcoholic. The same for drugs, the same for stealing things, for cursing, for hatred, for animosity, for lust. We fall prey to the very sin we commit and we, we live in it. That is the effect of sin. Then we have an encounter with God. And in, in the garden, it was our Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, searching for Adam and Eve. And they were hiding, cowering in the bush, for they heard him. And God calls out, where are you? I mean, does God not really know where Adam and Eve are? Is he not God, the creator of all the universe? The one who knows everything? Of course he is. Of course he knew what happened. He was merely coaxing them out like a parent, coaxing out a child who stole a cookie from the cookie jar. And so he calls them out. What have you done? Who told you that you, that you now have knowledge of good and evil? Who has done this? What has happened? He's coaxing the confession out. And once he has the confession, and notice between the two, Adam and Eve, Adam still shows cowardice. He still shows that he is not uh, filled with integrity. Instead, he points the blame on the woman, and then ultimately points it back to God. It's your fault, God, for you gave me this woman that caused me to sin, compared to Eve. Eve said simply, I was beguiled, and I ate. And so, after the confession is made, our Lord doles out the penance. To the man, he is now forced to work and labor. No longer would he enjoy the beautiful grace that was a part of existence in the Garden of Eden. Now he must be cast out to labor in the fields, and the sweat would drip from his head onto the ground upon which he would have to work and labor. And, our, and the lady... Eve, she too, would have to labor in pain, giving birth to new life. For that was the penance in which they now have to experience as a part of purifying themselves in, in reconciliation between them and God. Even the serpent receives penance, having his legs and arms cast off, and he now crawls and eats the dust all the days of his life. The Targums actually make very, very good mention of that, how the, the serpent walked into the garden and then crawls out. It's very interesting. You, you should read that. So this encounter with God, with confession and reconciliation and then penance. But notice that in Genesis... Our Lord, after through this process of confession, reconciliation, penance, he then restores them to grace by bringing them skins, animal skins, to clothe their nakedness. He restores their dignity. For at the fall, there, Eve must protect herself from her husband now, because now exists the potential of abuse, that she cannot allow herself to be abused, not even by her own husband. For she was not created to be a, a, a commodity, to be consumed for his lustful desires. She is a woman. She is a daughter of the Most High and should be respected and loved, cherished, cared for, and protected, even against intruders. And Adam failed to do that. So now they are clothed, and God provides that clothing. He has given them dignity back, clothing them. 
The same process can be seen even in St. Luke's Gospel. When we compare uh, the prodigal son, when he returns to his father, he, he thought to himself as he was eating the stalks of the pigs that, that reviled him so much as a, as a man of God, as a, as a Jew, he, they reviled all things that were related to pigs because a pig was declared an unclean animal. And he said, I will go back to my father and beg to be his slave for even the slaves live better than I'm living now. And so he starts to practice what he'll say to his father when he encounters them. But the father stands on the porch and looks for him. And when he sees him, he runs to him and he falls on him, embraces him and kisses his neck. And he doesn't even let the son finish the sentence. And he restores him to dignity, ordering that a robe be brought, that he be clothed, the ring put on his finger, shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf, for my son was lost and is now found. He was dead and now is alive again. That is the sacrament of reconciliation. That is the pattern we see throughout all of Scripture. That is the beauty of going to confession. We must prepare our hearts for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must do that by cleaning it out, by dusting it off, by getting rid of all of that stuff that clogs it, that diminishes our capacity to love, because it is only our love that will survive the purifying fires of purgatory. And the only way to increase our love is to live in a state of grace. And to do that, we have to go to confession. Confession is not judgment. It is God's mercy. For God uses that man. When Jesus breathed on the apostles and gave them the power to hear, to forgive, and to retain, that man is to give you mercy. Until next time, may God bless you. From the Catholic Underground.